Physicians are lousy business people. That's what some people say about you. That's what you often say about yourselves in talking about how you don't get business training in medical school. There's one entrepreneur in the medical space, a physician that you're familiar with because he's been on the show so many darn times, Dr. Francisco Arredondo, starting a new practice. Again, has been involved in other ventures. Like I said, last time on the show, I didn't even know that he was on the mate board or that he had started his foundation uh, because he's an entrepreneur and he's doing so many different things. And he has a book called Medicalpreneur. And we explore what he calls as this myth that physicians are lousy business people. And you know me, I tend to be, at least sometimes I'm an extreme centrist. So I don't think it's a complete myth, but I also think that it's something that people on the business side say to cover up for us being sucky business people sometimes. Uh, I think that there is a crutch that physicians are able to lean on that most business people cannot because you're so skilled and in-demand professionals, but that does impact when you're building an entrepreneurial venture. Now you're competing against entrepreneurial ventures. So we go through the book, Medicalpreneur. We talk about negotiation, hiring, accounting, uh, the reasons to be a medicalpreneur, the management and accountability chart. So please enjoy my guest again, Dr. Francisco Arredondo, talking about medicalpreneur. Dr. Arredondo Paco, welcome back to Inside Reproductive Health. Now your fourth time on the show. Yeah. So you're busy because the first time I think it was it was probably almost two years ago and a year and a half ago, maybe that was about when you were starting to come up with the concept for medicalpreneur and you were you were starting to lay out the book. Then you came on to talk about what it was like to, to own and sell a business. Then you were on recently to talk about training OBGYNs. But now we're talking about the book itself. It is written. It's published. I've got a physical copy in my hand right here. It's called Medicalpreneur, the official guidebook for physician success in business. And I want, I'm going to read the intro of why I wrote this book. This, this, is, this is you saying why you wrote the book. I want to change the mentality as well as the mythology that physicians are lousy business people. Physicians can be great entrepreneurs. They just don't know it. So why don't you talk about uh, a little bit about why this book and, and the case that you're making in this book. Yeah, well, it is uh, just a uh, thank you very much for the invitation once more. And I'm uh, really uh, happy to see that the, the show has been growing in audience and, 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 and a lot of uh, talk among all our uh, colleagues. So it's like people are listening to, to the show. So <clears throat> I grew up uh, always hearing that uh, physicians were lousy entrepreneurs or lousy business people. And uh, in a sense, I, I, I did believe that. And perhaps because I did believe that, I started studying more and learning more. And I have always liked to learn and read things outside medicine. But then uh, as I... Uh, became an entrepreneur and, and start developing uh, our own uh, uh, ventures. 
I realized that the software of the mind that it's required to uh, be a good entrepreneur and actually the hardware is already there. I mean, that we have as a physician very solid basis to be great uh, business people and entrepreneurs, especially in the third millennium in the 21st century. So I think that the operative word in your intro is that physicians can be great entrepreneurs. I don't know if you're arguing that they are great entrepreneurs. I don't really think you are in the book. I think you're saying they can be great entrepreneurs and here's the framework for them to think about it. I I don't know if it's a myth, but I do anyway, it's too the 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 axiom that physicians are lousy business people is too broad to be accurate for me. And what I mean by that is I think that it's often an excuse for other business people to, to use that myth as an excuse for not creating enough value. Yeah, everybody in the field says it. So for all you doctors walking by the people in the booths, all the people in those booths are saying that physicians are lousy business people. They say it all the time. I hear it all the time. I, I said it early on and then I started correcting myself for two reasons. One, it's as a business person, you always have to put the onus back on yourself. So if I'm saying, because basically what I'm saying is my customer doesn't know what they want. And that's, uh, that's a telltale sign of a lousy business person. So that would mean that I'm a lousy business person. But more specifically, I think this is where it gets kind of accurate, is that I think, I think that physicians and sub, especially subspecialists who are in demand are like skilled tradespeople that can often get away with bad habits in business that many business people cannot. So like a, a, an REI, there's 1,100 of you in the country. As you've talked about on the show several times, we're serving a fraction of the population that could be served. We have a shortage of electricians. We have a shortage of plumbers. If I need to get my toilet fixed, it doesn't matter if my plumber stinks at most of the aspects of, of business. There are that few of them, and I need one right now. And so... I think that I think that there are a lot of things that uh, that physicians can get away with uh, that that many businesses cannot because they're so in demand because they're so the the licensure and the the knowledge required for their craft is so high uh, that like Domino's Pizza can't do that because everybody can sell pizza so Domino's has to be a really or Papa John's has to be a really sharply run business. How would you respond to that? No, I, I, I think you are totally correct. And, and we become a little bit uh, um, less disciplined because fortunately our industry as a general healthcare uh, is generous. It's becoming less generous in, in the margins and everything, but it, it traditionally has been very generous. Uh, but I would say two things regarding the premise of why uh, I do agree with you that uh, nobody is uh, trained uh, as a, a business person or entrepreneur, but that I, I mentioned in the book, the difference between hardware and software. And in the hardware, in the 21st century, in the third millennium, whoever does business just to make money is out of the game you actually have to 
look at the money as the bypass product of the end. And the end is to add value, to create a solution for a problem, and the money will come in. So if you think about it, physicians are very good at listening to a problem, trying to figure it out, diagnosing, and creating a solution. Two, physicians are very good at reading patterns, which is indispensable for business. Uh, they are very hard workers, which is indispensable for uh, 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 a good success in business. They actually, we make decisions with imperfect information, which is essential for business. We have all the uh, hardware, the good ethics, the intention, the good intention to solve problems. We just require a little bit of discipline and business discipline. But even with our quote-unquote bad discipline, because we don't learn it in school, which is changing, fortunately, uh, I think that um, if you look in the statistics, if you have 100 business that open today, I believe the statistics, and they're more accurate in the book, it's like 50% cancer, you know, they're, they're done in one year. Uh, 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 by the third year, like 75%, and very few survive more than five years, uh, less than 10%, something like that. When have you seen that a doctor closes their office? <laughs> very rare. So even if, you know. Well, that's small- what I mean, though, Paco. The rest of us are faced with that sort of Damocles, and I, I see that more as evidence of, of they don't have to be as entrepreneurial. They're that in demand. And where the rest of us are, are dealing with that reality, nobody's like, oh, we need more marketers out there. I, I, I really need to craft a niche. I need to, uh, to, to develop the firm itself. And, uh, and I think that because marketing firms do close and they, they do follow that pattern that you just sure. described. And because practices don't follow that, I think that's what get lets them get away with bad habits. Yeah, they, they, there is no way, no uh, question that there is, in general, as a, a physician, a demand and supply issue that is in your favor. Um, I believe that by 2050, we're going to have like 40,000 shortage of physicians in the United States because also the medical schools are not producing enough. So, yeah, I I do think that there is an element of that. Um, However, I I do think that uh, uh, physicians have a lot of the uh, uh, capabilities. And and, and there is another um, uh, very important distinction to make. That there is, and the book uh, doesn't uh, uh, address these from the name, but there is a different software that you need for being a good manager or an entrepreneur. And sometimes these are actually counterintuitive. Uh, they are an opposite. Because an entrepreneur entails that you're going to create new ideas, that you're going to take risks, that you're going to fail, that you're going to innovate. And actually, to be a good manager, 
implies that you have to be very good at consistency, very good at precision, very good at repetition. So having navigate both sides, it is, it is very important as a physician, uh, a medical professional, to understand my role right now is as an entrepreneur. So I have to innovate. I have to think out of the box. I have to break some rules, if you may. I have to. And then when you create the idea and implement it, now you have to be a good manager. And you see it, even I see it right now in our industry, where you have uh, great entrepreneurs out there that come up with great ideas, but then they don't know how to handle the, uh, the, the boat. There are great architects of thinking ideas, but then they don't have the ability to do the boat. So it's just an important concept that I think uh, we need to think that there are different uh, softwares. It's no different than being a very good clinician and then a good uh, division director. You require different skills. Um, uh, also, so being a good teacher and being a good clinician is, is they're, they're different skills. And here in business, the uh, entrepreneur is different than the manager. There are some overlap uh, skills, but there can, there can be there. There are some people who are really good. But what you're talking about is the entrepreneurs tend to be higher in trade openness and managers tend to be a little bit lower in trade openness. Managers might or excuse me, entrepreneurs might be. Uh, lower on trait conscientiousness. Managers tend to be higher in trait consciousness. Of course, you can takers. Find, yeah, you can find some overlap, but often they are different profiles. And so let's talk about that a, a bit, about why someone would want to do this. You give three reasons to be uh, a, meta, a medicalpreneur. Uh, off the top of my head, it's freedom, prosperity. I'm flipping open a, to page 41 and uh, satisfaction and fulfillment. Um, and so talk about what an, on, what a medicalpreneur has access to. Why does a medicalpreneur have access to more of those things than an employee, let's say? Freedom, uh, infinite potential for prosperity and helping people and satisfaction and fulfillment. Well, uh, I think that the... The freedom is obvious because you construct your own destiny and um, uh, you define and choose who your team is. You define and you control uh, your agenda, your time. So there is a lot of uh, uh, control and, and independence that you get with that. Now, as you know, being yourself an entrepreneur too, is that when you say that, you really have to love what you do because in a sense, you're doing it 24 hours a day. So when I say freedom, it means that that you, you love what you do, otherwise you wouldn't do it uh, because we are thinking in the, uh, in the enterprise uh, 24 hours a day. Obviously, we need the breaks and, and it's very good to have the detachment from reality so uh, that is the uh, now when you're an employee you have the the uh, security of a paycheck you have the security of a uh, umbrella and somebody else to do uh, other things for you uh, 
but I think that entrepreneurship is not for everybody and management is not for everybody. Uh, but uh, you have a limited amount of things that you can explore outside of what you were trained to do. It is, it is certainly uh, uh, limited in, 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 in that sense. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that, Cherry, because I think that's a great way of describing the freedoms that entrepreneurs have. If I was an employee for someplace, I can't just say, we're starting a podcast tomorrow. I, you know, I could potentially nope. pitch that to bosses, but this is what I wanted to explore and the different areas of business that I've wanted. If I were just a salesman, I probably wouldn't have studied finance as much as I have as an entrepreneur and so or a business owner. And so uh, that's part of where entrepreneurs really, I think, do have more freedom. Now, we should probably talk about the, the flip side of that, which is the, the transition from, from uh, the transition to owning a business from being owned by the business is the great struggle that every entrepreneur signs up for. And many of us, many of them don't make it to that other side of really owning the business as opposed to it owning you. Everything that happens in the business is in is at some point down the line a cause of the limitations of the entrepreneur. If something happens in my business, it's my fault. It doesn't matter if it's a junior copywriter that writes something that you know that's under my creative direct. It's it's some if even if it's someone else is responsible for it, it's either a process I didn't put in place or I didn't properly coach the person to put that in place or I'm flawed as a recruiter that I can't get the right people or I'm flawed as a salesman that I can't sell fast enough to afford the right people faster. Yeah, everything is the fault of the entrepreneur at the end of the day. And you never get to just blame somebody else. And that that doesn't feel like freedom to a lot of people. Yeah, you have a 100% vicarious responsibility and vicarious liability of a lot of the things. But that also <clears throat> gives you, uh, you know, uh, when you have a, a lot of... Uh, uh, successes that you know you will not be able to do them just by yourself. You also harvest those. So it is it, it is a balance in the sense that you accomplish things that you know perfectly well that that you will not be able to uh, to do them otherwise. So I think there is a there is a balance, and and as an entrepreneur, you like those rests. Let's talk about some of the. Like the, the problems that people are, are signing up to solve and then what that's like in today's hiring landscape. So you talk about in the book that uh, their problem is our problem to solve, it, like a customer service attitude. Uh, yeah. can, you, can you talk about how you implemented that in practice originally? Well, one of the things uh, is, and I, I don't know if you and I have different views here on this or on, but but a lot of people, and especially a lot of the companies and a lot of the uh, people with uh, the business savvy have sold the idea to certain physicians that, oh, we want you only to do medicine. We will take care of the rest. That is the biggest nonsense of all time. Why? It is proven scientifically in a lot of the studies 
that, for example, whenever you separate the clinical from the administrative, actually, you start committing more mistakes. Uh, for example, there is a reason what are the two biggest and most successful uh, medical centers in the world, or the three, if you may, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, John Hopkins. From day one, from day one, the leader is a physician. From day one till this day. And they don't admit anybody that is not a physician as a leader. Because the person has been on the trenches until, like Dr. Cosgrove from Cleveland Clinic, he used to have one day a week seeing patients till these days. Why? Because that is the only way that you are directly into the trenches. When these people are in the ivory tower, the business people in the ivory tower up here, and they don't understand what the nurse that is outside there is struggling, what is the immediate uh, uh, patient struggle to pay a bill or to do this, um, they will never understand. They will never understand. They may have an idea, but they never understand. There is the same reason why the best coaches of NBA have been basketball players. The best um, uh, uh, race car drivers, uh, team, uh, team, team leaders have been pilots. So it is so important. And not everybody can or would like to be a, a, an executive as a physician, but it is so important that the person, the only person, and there is scientific evidence that the best way to evaluate another physician is another physician. So the hiring has to be done by physicians, to physicians, and there is plenty of evidence. I, I think I quoted there a, a, a Harvard Business Review article where they look at the quality measures of hospitals where the physician was the chief executive versus a non-physician. And it is significantly higher. So now, that doesn't mean that the business people have no role to play in healthcare. That's nothing further from the truth. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it, 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 you need, and physicians need to be more open and less close-minded to learn from other industries, which we do not. I, I, I would say that's a general rule. A lot of physicians do not like to listen or to look outside of the healthcare to learn. I mean, let me give you an example. You go to any IBF centers and the inventory is done by old-fashioned mom-and-pop schools. And anywhere, the inventory is like, totally automatized right now. We can learn from them. Um, so I, I would say that um, we should not fall trap into the, oh, you do only uh, physician uh, work and we do the business. They, they both, both have to be at the top intermingled. I've been dubious that they can be totally separated. Whenever I have the CEO of a network on and everyone said, you know, we never interfere in in 
clinical operations. I just, I, you, I don't see it's how you, can to, you can't totally separate them. It's uh, nonsense. And, yes. and in, uh, even if you do have a, 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 a chief medical officer making those calls, even if you do have a, a CEO that's a physician, they're, they're still going to make calls that impact uh, like protocols. And I, I just don't see I don't see how you can totally separate those two. I give the example of ultrasounds, for example. We have uh, one you know, one of our clients is just an amazing uh, doc loves their their patients and this person does all of their own ultrasounds. I know they could be seeing more patients, uh, but they want to do their own. Ultrasound. That's fine. That's their decision. But if I were the owner of a network and one, and my chief medical officer says, no, docs don't need to. And maybe my chief medical, of course, my chief medical officer is a doctor and that individual doesn't see all of, they, they don't do all their own ultrasounds. And they say, yeah, docs don't need to do all their own ultrasounds. Okay. Well then that's our policy now. I just don't see how you can totally separate those. Yeah. You, you, you can separate them. And, and in fact, you know, I, I, I hear, uh, people that come from different healthcare industries and, and, and walk into uh, a different healthcare industry and because I'm a healthcare industry expert, then I can help you. For example, uh, you know, uh, oh, I'm the, uh, 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 I was the national director of a, a lab company and now I'm coming to a fertility company. What does that one have to do with another? Uh, imagine this example that I'm gonna put to you. Who has been the best uh, basketball team coaches of the whole history? It is Phil Jackson in the four in, in, in the Bulls uh, in, in Chicago. They had an 81% winning rate. Nobody has ever done that. The five people were NBA players, et cetera. Nobody can argue that that is the best team of coaches in the entire world and history of basketball. Imagine that you grab them and you put them to coach the Dallas Cowboys or the Yankees. Are they going to be successful? They will figure it out. There's no question. There is no question that they will figure it out in five years or eight years. But in the meantime, they don't know who is selling the peanuts, who, what kind of incentives the, the players have with this, what kind of tricks do they do, what kind of socks do they are comfortable with. They don't know all the nuances of the actual industry, what they are. And here we have people that are, you know, as I mentioned to you, if you and I go in, in uh, uh, to a restaurant and, and, and we are actually, uh, 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 we like the restaurant and we put a review or we don't like the restaurant, we put a review. Uh, is our opinion valid? No question. It's very valid. But does that make us uh, food industry experts? By no means. I don't even know who's in the kitchen. What are the incentives? How do they pay? And we have people in our field that just because they were patients, now they are actually the, 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 they understand everything about fertility. It helps you. There's no question. There's an empathy issue, but that doesn't make you an expert. I think the expert, it is the physician that has been doing this for a while. And again, the physician needs to learn from the business. No question about it. Right. It gives you it can give you insights in, in so far as I have insights into the public school system from having been produced by it as a student. But that doesn't mean I really know how to run a, a school. So I've never been a teacher. I've never been an administrator. I've never worked in a school. And so 
Uh, you can get insights, but uh, so that's the that's what every entrepreneur finds out, though, isn't it? Is that entrepreneurs kind of get to where they are and they're working for somebody else when they think I could do that. And then you go off and start your own. You're like, oh, gosh, there was so much that I didn't know. This is really tough. Uh, and so I want to talk a little bit about the of why I think it is that like what you were talking about with the CEO of the Mayo Clinic, CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, and why we don't often see a physician at the helm in the CEO role. So I'm going to share my screen. For everybody listening on the podcast, it's going to be theater of the mind, but you can go to fertilitybridge.com to see this. And I really need to customize this chart to the fertility field, but this is an accountability chart for uh, for, for many businesses in that you have your visionary at the top. That's who you were talking about, the architect in the book. You're talk, you talk about the visionary as the architect. You talk about the manager as the captain, in this case, the integrator. And then you have different departments. You've got your sales and marketing. Your three core functions of any business are sales and marketing, operations, finance, and admin. And I might break off HR apart from finance and admin because I think it's something different. In our field, you might break operations into two, lab and clinic. But they're they're quite similar. And the, the problem is, Paco, is that you have a lot of seats underneath these seats. And the person who owns the practice is in a lot of them. And they devote most of their time down here because that's their production role. Their production role as a physician is, uh, well, I'm an REI. I have to do, I have to see 40 patients a month or 30 patients a month. And I need to do uh, 15, 20, 30, 40, however many they're doing cycles a month. And so they first fill up their time in this seat, which isn't even on my chart here. It's below here because they're, they have their production requirements. Whereas I feel like if, if I were the, if, if I were an REI that wanted to be, to build something big, I would keep my production role as small as possible really only for the purpose of of just staying current with the pay like you said the, the one ceo i think it was mayo that saw patients once a week both mayo and cleveland they do they they have one day a week to see the patients and but, uh, but in in our field it's often flip like may, maybe business that maybe physicians will have one admin day a week maybe and and, and that's also admin that's that's that, that that's not like visionary work. And so uh, I think it's flipped for a lot of the visionaries in our field. And ah. I think when people are looking at this, they're like, huh, do I want to be the, do I want to be in this visionary role and see as few patients as possible? Or is it better for me to see as many patients as I can and then just kind of plug in a patchwork for other people in the business? I think they often do the latter. Oh, it's a dilemma. And, 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 and we mentioned it that uh, with the shortage that we have of physicians, we have to be uh, clever to think and innovate outside the current business models where we use everybody at the top of our license. And uh, there are certain tasks that a reproductive endocrinology, in my view, should not be doing. I mean, you could do it and you know how you should know how to do it so you can teach people to do it. But if you want to run this uh, uh, system efficient, you really have to use uh, advanced practitioners. You have to use PAs, nurse practitioners, and, and other, and now AI. 
uh, in order to maximize your productivity and uh, uh, the balance of how much clinical versus uh, visionary work you have to do, I think it's an individual decision-making and also it is a circumstance. You know, when, when you're early in, in an enterprise, you have to wear all the hats. And then later on, you start, you know, dividing it. You owned your last practice for 10 or 12 years before you sold it? How long did? 14 years, 13, 14 years. Okay. Um, we're at the end of those 13 years, were you doing as much production work as you were in the beginning? No, and in fact, uh, when I used to be the chief medical officer of uh, Inception, I used to have two days clinic a day, a week only. So, and before that, I would say I had three days. So it was half and half. What do you think the number? Granted that I have a superb team. I mean, the team was superb and they did a lot of the work and they were very, very good. And I, I, I could not be happier than that. So that that's my question too is like at what point do you think somebody can start to do that where they are only maybe doing two clinic days or one clinic I mean do they need to have do they need to be working with six seven eight ten doctors I would, before I would say when you already have four physicians if the vision is to increase and grow the, pack, the, the, the practice and to make it thrive. Because one of the other mistakes that a lot of industries do is that they think on growth, 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 growth. And you know the only thing that grows, 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 grows is cancer. And the multiple cells are not good when they keep on growing without any measurement. You don't want the economy just to grow. You want the economy to thrive. So when you want a company to thrive, and then make it grow. That's a different way to do it. Uh, when you wanted to thrive, I would say that even when you are at three to four physicians, you need one of those uh, uh, individuals to take a significant 25% of their role dedicated exclusively to do the vision, the growth, the standardization, there is actually a, a, a very um, uh, nice uh, book that is called Growing Pains, and it, it, it points out how uh, uh, the different levels of growth and how at different points of revenue, you really have to standardize the procedures, you know, create the basics of the uh, human resources, because when we open the clinic, one, two physicians, we just open it with basically no mission statement or nothing. We're going to change, you know, hang the shingle there and keep the patients coming. But there is no corporate structure and there's no basis. And then when we try to do it after we have 10 physicians, that's too much. And, and because it is too much, because now everybody has a different philosophy. And this is the other thing that happens. Um that when you grow, you have different cultures. And when you see these companies that are growing not by uh, organic growth, that they go and build another one and build another one from the inception and go and, and, and go up, but they actually just grow by acquiring companies, 
what happens is that they're buying problems. They're buying actually everybody, all the uh, uh, private equity people focus on the ledger and on the numbers and very few focus on the culture. And it is the reverse. You have to define what is the culture that you have to um well, they're not there because they don't have a centralized culture that they're buying. They're they're buying a number of different practices that don't have you, a uniform you, you, culture. You have and to create the uniform. Where are the points of congruence of all those and create it, define it, and then all the financial elements and everything else will fall into place. But they do it backwards. And then they are focused on the monies and the monies and the synergies and all this. And the culture, everybody does whatever they want. <laughs> I said that when Gina Bartesi came on the show, I, I said that I think that is a huge advantage that people underestimate about kind body. And people can say whatever they want about. I'm not qualified to evaluate every piece of a business. I own a client services firm. What I am, what I do feel really qualified to analyze is 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 centralized co Co sure. cogent and coherent messaging. And they've got that in spades. You can see you're rallying around one thing. And no I, I don't know everything about their HR, but uh, and 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 there's a lot more to delivery than just brand. But you it certainly is a huge advantage to structure a culture system, including yep. down to the procedural HR process level when you have that central theme. And I, I think that's a huge I, I just think that's a huge challenge that uh, private equity networks have that it, I, I wonder about their ability to uh, to, to to do economies scale. of scale if they can't if they can't plug it into one culture culture because because the, but then by nature they're always piecemealing they're always patchworking at that mm -hmm. point yeah it's like you know sometimes you buy an old house and uh, and it's better just to demolish it than put it from the ground up. Then, then try so, to fix. You might own the practice. You might manage the practice. In either event, you want to likely get more productivity from your staff without driving them crazy, meaning getting more productivity from them by actually helping them and by actually helping your patients, improving their experience. You've heard me talk a lot about Engaged MD. Different practices have signed up for it because they heard it on the show. I've begged you, the audience, to send me an email if you had a negative experience with EngagedMD, and I still haven't gotten one. And so if you still don't want to take my word for it as someone who just talks to practices, then you can see what the practices themselves are saying. Just go to the EngagedMD.com homepage. You scroll right down to the bottom. You're going to see testimonial after testimonial talking about reducing the length of appointments, what used to be an hour or 90-minute appointment is now 15 minutes because the patient is better, better educated and they're asking questions that are specific to them instead of general questions. And they're happier about that because the information that they are getting is more informed. It's a better educated question that they're getting the answer to and it's personalized to them. And then you're going to see logo after logo a logo of every kind of fertility center there are independently owned small groups there are huge network groups there are academic centers every kind of fertility center works with engaged md and like i told you i still have not heard 
one bad. I'm not saying it's not out there, but I'm begging people to send me an email if that's the case. And I haven't gotten it. All I hear is that it's one of the biggest things that has allowed people to relieve their staff at a time when staff are swamped and where patients are overwhelmed with everything else happening in life to give them a better experience so that they are have more rapport and better education when they're interacting with your team. And by the way, informed consent is a whole nother thing that we could talk about. But in the meantime, maybe you focus on this workload piece and just see what other practices are doing. If you go to engagedmd.com slash Griffin, they'll do a free workflow analysis for you. It's free. Just tell them my name, say that you heard it on the podcast. You can see what other practices are doing and you can see any gaps that you might be missing. But now is the time to do this because it adds so much value at a place and time when staff are swamped out of their minds and patients are constantly looking to be delighted. And it's so hard to delight them when staff are so overwhelmed. Engagedmd.com slash Griffin. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Let's talk about that culture then. You have your five H's for hiring and I will read those to the to our, our listeners here. Don't worry, guys. You don't need an audible subscription. You can just listen to my raspy voice. Hungry, humble, happy, honest, human skills. All five of those are what you describe as making for A players. But what I really want to hear from you is you are starting a, a new practice group now, right? Uh, yeah. Po- positive IVF. And uh, in, in 2022, and then, and then there's other ventures that you're associated with. And, you know, you first uh, made RMA of Texas in the mid 2000s. Is that right? And so in, uh, 2006. Yeah. So in 2006, there was not uh, baby boomers had not yet begun to retire and millennials were just barely arriving in the workflow, workforce. Uh, me and a couple other 21 year olds. And and so it contrast that with today. And now uh, baby boomers are not entirely retired, but uh, it seems like 75% at this point. And, uh, and now millennials aren't even the youngest generation. I mean, we have a new one. So talk about what it's like uh, trying to live up to all five H's today in 2022 versus what it was like 16 years ago. Well, certainly we have a shortage of, of uh, talent. Uh, but I think once more, uh, if you have a good um, idea that resonates with the team members, they will join that vision. Um, fortunately, for our new team here, that is actually our old team. Uh, you know, our my partner and lab director, uh, Tony Anderson, you know, we've been working together for more than 14 years. The uh, fertility coach, the nurse, I have been working for her for 20 years uh, since I was in Cleveland. So everybody's, it's, it's a tribe, so it's a tribe. But in this uh, era, I think that it's still valid that if you have a good philosophy, of the practice that really resonates with the values of the new uh, millennials, it will thrive. 
the, the millennials are much more collaborative and less competitive. And you need to appeal to that. Uh, I would say also that you have to have a mission in, in, in your company. It's no longer about the money only. Uh, and more important, I honestly believe that the great leaders are not the ones that have followers. The great leaders are the people that empower others to become leaders. In our next past venture, I think five or six people in our teams had their own business while working for us, and we stimulated. Yeah, go and do that, go and do that, go and do that, because we have to create other leaders. But a lot of the times the leaders that are not A people, because A people will always hire A people, and B people will always hire C people because they're scared of themselves. They're scared. So I have no question uh, hiring somebody that knows much more, and you know everybody knows uh, in, in, in that there's a lot of things that I'm not good at, but I, I welcome that. Uh, and I know what I can do and I know what the other person can do. So I think that if you create an environment where you set those rules that you can say, hey, you come here and you can be a leader, we will allow you to be a leader. And in the time you might leave, that's fine. Good for you. Every, you should not be scared, especially on an industry like ours, that 90 or 85% of the market is on top. That's what we have to be more collaborative in our industry. Unless they, instead of carrying all the cards close to your chest, that's the business of the 1950s. Nowadays, you have to be collaborative, share ideas, and everything is going to come back in a much better way for your company. So I want to talk about that mission and values uh, because I see both sides of the sword. On one side, it's where it's I, I've built my company on on five values, and and we evaluate the team with that, and I use it in hiring, and I try to live up to them, and I try to for some of our clients now that haven't done branding work yet, I'm trying to get them to do branding for their next initiative, even though they're doing very well, and. Uh, so they're kind of thinking, well, what do we what do we need to upgrade our brand for if if we're perfectly busy with volumes? And it's like, well, but you also have people that are not coming into work or not coming into uh, or, or they're not they're not showing up for interviews. And uh, it's it's partly because to be a desirable place to work requires being someone that communicates a mission and values that's really attractive. And you've got more competition there than you ever have before, to your point. And, and people want to be involved with that. What I see the other side happening, i.e. employees boycotting Netflix, i.e. Uh, you know, some Spotify and some other places, is that eventually, if, if, the, if the mission, the values, like any religion eventually the 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 congregation the follow the faithful as it were are 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 going to split into uh the practical 
and the and and ultimately the ideal. And there comes to be a point where you can't live up to the ideal because we live in the real world or somebody has a different version of it in their head. And so I see some companies right now being ransomed by their own ideals and their own missions. Well, well, this isn't what we really stood out for. And 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 I see I see the the tension. So I wonder if you can talk about a bit about that of eventually the entrepreneur has to say, okay, well, but this is what I mean by these values. And no, I'm not just going to let you be a mob that, that guides the values of this company. This is what they actually mean. Oh, I think, you know, uh, this uh, reminds me a lot of a, a book that I was recommended recently that I just finished that is called Productive Tensions. And these guys go over uh, eight different tensions that ought to be in every single company. And you need to balance that tension. We mentioned one of them, which was the natural tension of, of, uh, of being medical exact uh, because we, if you fail, you can kill people. But at the same time, you have to innovate because if not, you're going to miss opportunities. So that's a, that's a tension. Uh, and, and in this particular case of what we're talking about of employees, I, I, I personally think that the current millennials are people that are going to, in average, have five or six different careers in their lives. So it would be silly to think on the mentality of the 1920s or 40s or 50s of IBM that you expect an employee to be five or six different careers, not five or six different jobs, but five or six different careers. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. I think the number of jobs will be way more than that. (laughs) Much more than that. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I think that it would be if we don't adapt to that as entrepreneurs, as uh, managers, that we understand that uh, sometimes these people are going to go in a different direction. So it's better for us and for society to give them the uh, tools to become leaders and to help us out to build the company. For example, in this company that we created, we have made the decision that we are not going to put non-competes on any uh, healthcare provider. Because I believe that the the people won't leave because we're going to treat them so well. They're going to be so happy here that they're not going to leave. And, and, you know, I I think that we're very committed. You know, things may change, but I think we are uh, so committed to that because the moment you put an uncompete, you basically bought the right to mistreat that physician because they can go anywhere else. And uh, so we're very uh, clear on that. You know, things may uh, change in in the future, but I think that... uh, uh, The counter-argument to that, Paco, is that I bought the right to invest in my physician because I'm going to share all of these things with them and then they can't just take it across the street. What did we invest? I mean, uh, we basically, the only way 
I introduced them to my OBGYN network. I, I diverted yeah, my right. call center to take my wait list and, and bring those patients to them. I used my marketing department to, uh, to funnel their social media. Um, the benefits that, that I vested in them, the, and the, plane, uh, the, and the, plane the training that they didn't get in fellowship to your point, I gave to them that first year. And the plane would not have flown without that pilot. So you would not have sold tickets. So the plane and all those tickets that you sold would not have been flown if you didn't have that pilot. So there is a synergy. So again, it's an all nor a non. I think that, you know, the people should pay something uh, or uh, uh, learn at the beginning and, 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 and not have a high salary as unfortunately right now, or fortunately for all the people that are graduating are getting, because <clears throat> what happens is it, it is that there are people that are graduating that are earning more than the people that have been there for a while. And, you know, that's, that's also uh, uh, unfair, but it is what it is, is supply and demand. Well, so let's go to the first H in your, in your five H's, which is hungry, which is right hungry. now, I think it's, it's, it can be hard to find people that are hungry in different, uh, uh, in different areas because there's more food on the table. And I really want to build a company that is, uh, that, that, that treats their employees super well, that is a cut above the market. And it's, it's, it's hard to be able to get to a place when there are, when there are those tensions in play. And, and I'll come back to that tension because you referenced the, the different tension. But when you see so many people right now that either don't show up to an interview or you know, they, they, they barely do a follow-up and it's like, I just don't, it's like, I just need to see a little bit more hunger to hire you. And I see less of that now than I did even three years ago. And, and I see people on LinkedIn saying, well, employees are getting what they're worth now. It's like, well, they're getting what they're worth now. If we dump a ton of money into the marketplace and that makes housing prices go up, that's what, the, and that's, and that's what that does to housing inventory. That's what housing is worth now. If there's a big dip, then they'll be worth something different. And I think we've, we're, we're, we've swung so far to one way that it can be hard to screen for that first age. It can be, it, it can be hard to, to find somebody who's really hungry because recruiters are everywhere offering them food. Here's, here's a job here. Here's, an, here's another job. Here's a promotion. Yeah. And so I wonder if you found that yet. Yeah. Um, uh, fortunately, I haven't, we haven't had that uh, challenge, but I do see a lot of people having those challenges. It is, we have to admit that this is a very unusual circumstances that we have. You know, pandemias happen only every hundred years. <laughs> so this post-pandemia is a very unique time. Uh, this allow a lot of people to reflect and reset their values. So uh, I think that it's going to come back to a little bit more to the middle. Um, but it's not going to go back to before, that's for sure. Um, so I think that in that sense, it's a little bit uh, um, unfair to judge what's going to happen in the next two years of what is happening right now. Um, but uh, the, the people are not going to work unless they 
have at least one two days remote work. They uh, because now it's 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 a norm. So it, we have to change the way in the business model. And this is our argument for fertility. We've been practicing fertility the same way since 1978, IVF, the same way. We need to think differently. Um, so Hungary, uh, it, is, it is certainly uh, difficult to assess at this point, but I think you can, you, you, you can tell. If not in the interview, immediately in the first 90 days, you can tell who is hungry. So then you go to the other age. People might be hungrier if there's a dip in the market and res- and unemployment goes up to 12%. It's, it, hunger seems yeah. to be lower than than it does normally, but I still think it's worth, I still think that it's worth uh, screening for even in today's uh, day and age. The solution is that you have to invest more in what the candidates see in your company so that they are hungrier for that. If there's more food in the marketplace, yeah. more jobs and more money, etc., then they need to see something in yours that makes them still want that more despite all of the other options on the table. And uh, when, when I talk about tension, though, in terms of culture, Paco, is what I'm really seeing is that the customer experience almost everywhere has suffered from whether it's professional services firms or uh, hospital systems that are understaffed with nurses, or if it's uh, the roofing company that uh, finishes the job halfway and then doesn't do it again for another three and a half weeks because they have so many jobs or, or the, the restaurant that uh, you know, used to be instant and they just kind of slap the food on and it takes 45 minutes to get your food. I, I, I see that the customer experience has suffered almost everywhere. And I think that this is tied into uh, the employment market. But you talk in the book, you say their problem is our problem to solve. But like that I, I have, is a real tension between employees' interests and uh, pa- patient or customers' interests. In the case of fertility patients, what do fertility patients want? An answer whenever they darn well please, whenever they call, whenever they ask for it. What do employees want? They want work-life balance. They're saying it like crazy. They don't want to be working till eight o'clock. They don't want to get have to e- answer emails at nine. But, but that's what the patient wants. So that's what customers want. They want instant feedback. So this is a huge tension, not just in our field, but that particular example is. So how do you reconcile that tension? Because I don't believe it when people say, oh, employees come first, but customers also come first. At, yeah. at some point, think- you have to decide. It's a balance, but uh, again, uh, the uh, if if it's in the culture of the team of being very uh, uh, patient centric, um, uh, they they will do it. Especially if you also treat your your team members uh, well. So yeah, it's I, I I cannot I cannot think in a binary way that it's only about the employee and it's only about the uh, the customers. Uh, but what I what I say is, or the, the the saying that their problem is our problem is that in a lot of places they say, oh, you know, uh, I didn't have my medication. Well, it's not my problem. It's the pharmacy that didn't, you know, send it. 
Well, no, actually, uh, uh, even if it is the if it is not your fault, it, you make it your problem, and you try to resolve it, and then you go and go to the root cause of uh, that, and you prevent it. So you know we have to uh, analyze all these problems and try to prevent them in the future. Let's skip ahead a little bit because yep. I want to talk about negotiation. I'm going to skip over accounting just because uh, I, I don't it's think boring. I've got to go in there. But but I do think that people should buy your book, even if just for the accounting chapter, especially uh, prospective practice owners for for those younger docs that are thinking of opening a practice Buy medicalpreneur just for I think it's chapter five on accounting that talks about oh, it, where Paco gives a sample uh, income statement, profit and loss statement. And I think just by- we compare, it to, we compare it to a, 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 a patient in the um, intensive care unit. It is the same. And the, the three things that you ought to know, which is the balance sheet, the profit and loss, and the pro forma or cash flow is like entering and seeing a patient in the ICU. That's the analogy that I use there. And it's very, very easy for a physician to understand if, if they go in and think that way. But you also like start off with with numbers in there that people can can at least use as a, a baseline to see like, oh, I'm this is how far I might be off from from that. But it's very useful. And so but I want to talk about negotiation because there are a lot of younger docs that listen to this show and you have a diagram on page 185 where you show the overlap. And in this instance, you're talking about negotiating uh, rent, uh, but the the landlord has a range of of where of where they've got alternatives and other options of what they of what they would love to get. Um, and the tenant has other options and they have an area of what they would love to get. And there's some overlap between yep. those two. And, and that overlap is not one point. It's, it's a range of points. It's a range. Uh, mean, and in this case, it's uh, the, the, the area of positive deal, the possible the, deal. The most that the tenant would ever pay in this particular instance is $8,500 a month. That's the most that the tenant would ever pay. The, the least that the landlord would ever rent it for is $7,000. And so uh, that's the overlap in this case. In the instance of getting to this overlap, the conventional wisdom has said, always say the first number first. Say, say or, or excuse me, never say the first number. Never say the first number. Uh, my experience tells me otherwise. What do you think? Yeah, uh, I think you are delving into the technique of the bargaining, which is different than the negotiation. All right. So zoom uh, us out. So what, so what yeah, comes so before the, the, the negotiation is uh, basically you have to look at all the variables that you are going to bargain. So uh, is it only the salary? If you focus only on the salary, you're kaput. I mean, you're just limiting yourself. But you have to, that's why uh, being creative is good for, for negotiation. Uh, you have to think of ways that are positive sum game. What are the things that the two parties can actually benefit from versus something that in the bargaining is a zero sum game? The bargaining is a zero-sum game, and, and it is what it is, and there are specific techniques 
I think I've mentioned one in the book of, of how to, to, to do it. But I think that the negotiation has to be bigger than that as to where do you do the negotiation, the timing, the, uh, uh, the presence, what you want to ask, uh, have you study your needs and their needs? But the what most you do, the information that you got garner before the negotiation, or, before right. the bargaining, for sure. And not only from them, but from you. I think that is the the the, the most important negotiation is within is what is my walk out point. If you enter into a negotiation without understanding or knowing your walkout point, you're dead. You have to know that if I will never pay $1 million for this, right? Or I'm, the most I will pay for this pen is $20. So yeah, I might start, you know, getting this and that. And, but whenever the other side says it's 22 and it's not moving from there, buy it because I know my walkout point is 20. But if you enter without knowing what is what you want, what is your walkout point, then you will never you, you, you get into the emotion of the uh, of the bargaining, and you get you get lost. You get lost. So you have to know what is because if not, you do the negotiation. You're gonna be so angry at yourself that you obtain this uh, red herring up here. But what it was important for you, you didn't get it. So. And it, it, the walkout point is not one point in, in the number. It is like, you know, I, I, it could be days, it could be vacations, it could be places, it could be uh, bonuses. I don't know what is your um, uh, walkout point, but everybody has different. Uh, the city where you're going to leave, if you're negotiating for uh, something outside. So I think the most important message would be Know your walkout points. Learn one or two uh, techniques of bargaining. And three is be creative. Think outside of the box so you can create positive sum game instead of a negative uh, sum game or a zero sum game. And establishing that value in the other person's eyes before the bargaining is also going to help you get to the ceiling. It may even get you past what they originally thought was the ceiling of their bargaining. I, I think about this all the time now, Pago, that if I were going to go interview for a job, now that I've interviewed so many people and I know what I'm looking for, I feel like I would just totally disrupt the, I feel like I would just crush the interview process now. And part of the reason is what I see a lot of people not doing is investigating what are the outcomes for the role and uh, and and then asking the right questions and showing how I really convincing me that they can hit those outcomes. So a lot of people coming in talking about like what kind of person, how hard of a worker they are, their accomplishments, and some of it might relate to the outcomes and some of it might not. But what I really want to see somebody discerning the outcomes of the role and most job descriptions don't have outcomes in the role, but that's a start for you to, to use as like, let's say we're talking about a job in this instance, the job has job descriptions. Uh, you're going to do IVF cycles. You're going to do IUI. You're going to work in this office. Okay. How many IVF cycles do you want me to be doing after year one, after year two? After your how many uh, and then how many uh, so if that's good what's excellent 
And what's, what's the bare minimum that if I don't hit that, this would be a total failure. And, uh, and then what offices do you want me to open? What procedures do we have in place for that? And so when you can see somebody asking questions about an outcome and they're really discerning, uh, this is what it would take to get the outcome done. Then like the, the people that I've sprung the most for Paco are the people that in my mind, I see like, yeah, this is the person that's going to hit this outcome that I have for them. This is the person that's going to let me walk away from this seat. And when people can do that first, then bargaining is, is something that, that comes after later. But the other person you've at that point, you've already got the other person thinking like, Oh, this, you, this is someone who's differentiated. Well, correct, because he has been thinking through the process. No question. Well, no that question. chapter on negotiation, I also recommend uh, for, for any doctor, but especially the younger doctors. Uh, Pago, how do you want to conclude? We've got it's your colleagues that listen to the show. Many of them have owned their practice for many years. Some of them uh, might want to start a, a a side venture. Others might just be starting their career and they're thinking about if they're going to open their own practice or if they're going to work for somebody else and start another kind of business. How do you want to conclude the lessons of Medicalpreneur? Basically how we started that, uh, yes, uh, um, you have to change the, uh, uh, the mindset that yes, you can be a great business person. Yes, you can be a great entrepreneur that you have to understand what you're doing. Are you innovating or are you managing two different things? Are you doing a little bit of both? So then you have to change your hats of how you approach things. Um, to use some of the skills that you use as a physician, read a lot, investigate a lot, question a lot. And most important, be convinced that uh, you can do it. But I, uh, uh, I hope that more and more in our medical field, we instill uh, some of these concepts because I think, um, you know, uh, uh, my, my daughter is applying to medical school as we speak and she was one of the ones that read through my book and all this and she said, wow, so nothing of this is in medical school. I says, no, nothing of this is in medical school. Oh, so this is so, I mean, there's a lot of things that are so useful. Obviously, my daughter, she's biased, but I think that uh, that was the, 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 the whole message that we need to put this into the minds of the, uh, uh, of the physicians. That, and, and actually, in, in a lot of professionals, we don't, they don't teach us a lot of these things. Well, this is one crash course that people can take. They can get it at medicalpreneur.com. Medicalpreneur is spelled with a K, or you can go right to Amazon, medicalpreneur, with again, with a K, by Dr. Francisco Arredondo. We'll link to both of those links in the show notes. Paco, thanks so much for coming back on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye, Griffin. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.